0: This is an extremely brief summary on how experiencing the Holocaust firsthand shaped Rav Amital's thought, um, shaped his career, his um, most important career decision to launch a new model of Hezder, Hezder HaChila in the form of the Yeshiva, the Haritzion Yeshiva, which in those days was a very revolutionary idea. And obviously... A lot has been written on this. Um, there's an entire book written by—I um, don't believe he was a Talmud of the Yeshiva. Actually, his name is Moshe Maya, but he, I think, wrote his either doctorate or master's thesis on Rav Amital's view of the Holocaust, and it's called "A World Destroyed, a World Built, Destroyed and Rebuilt," uh, based on the Medrash in Parshas Noah. I'm holding it now in my, in my hands. It's about 105, 100 longer, well, actually it's about 105 pages. And then it includes some of Ramital's own writings. So certainly this this year is not a comprehensive attempt to uh, survey how it impacted Ramital. Those who want a more extensive view, I, I'm not sure, I think it may have been translated into English, but certainly the Hebrew copy is readily available from the Herzog Institute, uh, the Yeshiva's Tanakh study uh, teaching college. He didn't talk about the Holocaust a lot. Um, it wasn't something that he referenced that frequently, either as a concept or as personal experiences. There was one moment in which he was actually interviewed about it, I think towards the end of his life. It became a little bit more of a factor, but it wasn't something he was obsessed with, or something which surfaced in every Sikha. On the same token, a lot of people listening to the shia are a little bit younger may be surprised at him dedicating so much time to this issue. But Ravamithal was an early adapter, as we would say. People in my generation, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager in the 70s, really didn't talk about the Holocaust that much. Remember, it was 30 years from the Holocaust, less, it was 25 years, and people were still bearing very deep scars. Um, I remember, not that our scars today are trivial, but it was much more visceral. I told people, as Amtov, that they don't have to leave the shul for Yiskor. And there's nothing in the halacha that someone that doesn't uh, have a loss, that's someone that has both parents, must run out of shul, which is so disruptive to Tvinlus. And people ask me, well, where does the minna come from? And I'm sure there's some aspects in minhag, ayin hara, if you don't have a loss, maybe you shouldn't stay in shul. But I think a lot of the minhag gained traction after the Holocaust, when people were really suppressing the pain they felt because they lost everything, parents, siblings, children. And then once a year, they would pour their heart out about this issue. And, and just, it was probably so deep and emotional and such shrieks and, and, and tears that they didn't want the children to be exposed to it. So it started with the children leaving. And then I think, it must have been an earlier minhog but I think it really gained a lot of traction in the post-Holocaust environment. So I remember growing up in, I had grandparents who were in different ways um, suffered Holocaust um, experiences, and neither of them really spoke about it so much or too often with me. But Ravallantel really wasn't wasn't um, in any way silent about it. He just didn't really reference it that much, but to the end of his life, he did. So I want to try to highlight some of the issues that he spoke about with us that left the memory on me and how I feel it shaped him. He spoke with us about that very chaotic fall of nineteen forty four where he Davened um, where he Davened Rosh Hashanah he was still incarcerated in a concentration camp. Ramitel spent about eight months in a concentration camp. Remember he was Hungarian and the Nazis reached Hungary, Budapest did, or expelled the Budapest ghetto at a very late stage. So he only spent about eight months Let's say from about the winter of 1944 till the fall. But Rosh Hashanah time, he was still davening in the concentration camp. By Yom Kippur time, he was in this quasi state of freedom, which they were free. They weren't in the camp. They were in the ghetto. They were in basements, trying to find places to daven. They were still under the supervision of one of the guards, but it doesn't seem like they were working, and it doesn't seem like the supervision was that airtight. At a certain point. Ramital said that I think on Simchastara it was clear that the Russians and the allied forces were advancing. At that point, they were completely free and their concentration camp guard or commandant came over to them and said, I have been guarding you, now you have to be guarding me. Namely, he was fearful that the Russians and the Americans would apprehend him. And he turned to Ramital and said, you now have to guard me. Anyway, so two things happened in that um, in that moment. Number one, Rav Amital saw everyone davening in this dark cellar. Very few people had machzorim. Um, they were saying it very quickly. They were trying to get the tefillos um, performed without without people having a machzor. And Rav Amital remembers people davening with a and asking Hashem to give the Jewish people honor and glory. said You elevated us and you chose us and you loved us. And it was very, very almost um, ironic and, and, and hurtful to imagine saying these words in an environment in which Jewish blood was so cheap, and Jews could be lined up like dogs and shot at will. And this left a very strong impact on him. He would always speak about this on Yom HaNerayim and how hard it was for him to imagine and how grateful he was to live in an era of the modern state of Israel in which the Jews once again have a restoration of their kavod, of their honor, and of their glory. And Tein Kavod Hashem Le'amecha resonates in a way that it really didn't during the time of the Holocaust, and who was part of a larger message that the rising fate and rank of the Jewish people in our world is really a reflection of Hashem's presence in this world, and the Kiddush Hashem, and, and I remember him crying when he davened on the Yom Kippur, when he reached this point of the of daven, and he was being taken back to that, Rosh Hashanah of 1944, the dark cellars of the ghetto. Um, he also reached a very important conclusion. And it was a conclusion that he reached through a lot of honesty, and he always encouraged us to be honest rather than inauthentic about our Avodah and resting upon older, perhaps, not antiquated, because models of a Hashem never become antiquated, they just become less suitable for particular eras. And... He felt that after the Holocaust, he reached the conclusion in that cellar. Jews could no longer predicate their relationship with HaKadosh Baruch based on HaKaros HaTov. As the Rebbeinah B'chayah says in the Chovos HaLavavos, that the core of our identity with Hashem is the gratitude we feel to Hashem for all He's bestowed upon us and the care and the concern. And, and then in the wake of such a nightmare and such a grotesque experience, it was inauthentic, and Hashem doesn't want forgery, it was inauthentic to build a relationship with Hashem based on gratitude. And instead, he quoted the Pasuk in Eov, in Perak Gimel, Pasuk Tezvav, Hein even if he kills me, I'll still wait for him and, and pine for him. There's love, commitment, loyalty, even if I'm not able to understand the treatment that I receive and, and the, the lack of protection that I anticipated receiving. And Rav Amital knew that the younger generation would find this difficult, because to a degree it's strident and caustic, because traditionally, Rebbeinah Mechayi talks about Hakar Satov. but Rav Amital was being authentic, and he always thought that authentic definitions of our relationship with HaKadosh Baruchah were more apt to survive than stereotypes or shells which didn't resonate with truth and and with authenticity or in a genuine fashion. Um, I personally think that now that we're 70, 80 years away from the Holocaust and the state of Israel has dramatically and so precipitously evolved and the Jewish fortune in our world has once again been reclaimed, I think we can start thinking about Hakara Satov and responding to the miracles that we've seen. But certainly that very dark period, let's say, between 1940 and 1990, before Israel emerged as a superpower, and were fighting very, very vicious wars, I think that Rav accurately sensed that the emotional interface of our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch had to necessarily change. Um, so those were two very, very powerful impressions that that cellar, Basement davening of 1944, left on Rav Amital. Saying, Hashem And realizing that at this stage, the drive or the core of our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch has to be updated into a different um, version. Um, I think he also spoke in that context. I don't know if he drew these conclusions specifically in that cellar, but when he spoke about davening in the cellar and changing the way we relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu after the Holocaust, he talked in general. That's something that he try to educate us beyond just Holocaust processing, but in general that so much about life is living with questions and saying you don't know and it's better saying Yiddish Best It's I shvera Kasha a shvera teret, it's better to have a difficult question than a very, very inelegant or incomplete answer. And the sense that some people have that everything in life has answers and we try to find the answers to everything and if we don't have answers Then ideas aren't worth accepting or internalizing and he said that he looked at people davening both there and of course after the Holocaust and in Auschwitz and he kept asking himself how do people daven how do people daven after the war coming back to your city and not finding your children, your families and he saw them davening and it preoccupied him and he didn't have an answer to that but he wanted us to ask questions even if they didn't yield answers. He taught for many years in Yeshiva HaBerom and Rehovot alongside Rav Shach, with whom he was very close and professional, even though that had some very sharp differences, obviously, ideologically. And Rav Shach told him that educationally, the most important answer a rabbi can ever give a Talmud is I don't know. Now, obviously, there's a moral component to that humility and lack of a false posing. On the other hand, it's also a theological issue that we can't understand everything about our country. More. And certainly, if there's one takeaway from the Holocaust, it's that we, we live our lives with questions. And Daliton refused to create a simple packaging for the Holocaust, that the Holocaust was necessary so that, or was in response to, he felt the Holocaust was too large to be wrapped in a single human convention or a single human suggestion. And it reminded us in a very, very powerful and in violent fashion that we can't understand the ways of Kurdish Baruch Hu. Rav Amital would also recount to us all these near-death experiences that he had, and he would say them with such a casual nature because they happen so frequently, not just living through the Holocaust, but these brushes with death, when, and just one that he would tell us often is that... Um, um, that somehow the gate of the ghetto had been broken and they were shouting to the Jews to come out of the cellar, um, to come out of their hiding places, I guess, as this chaotic final stages of the war unfolded. And it was unclear who was really, um, um, who, who who's really had the upper hand and who was really dominating the scene. And some of the German soldiers came and they were searching for the partisans and, and Tal and his cousin were hiding in an apartment, and, and some of the Jews were telling Rav Amital and his cousin to come down that the Germans were going to find them, and um, and they refused to go down. They thought it was safer to remain in the apartment, and they hid in a pantry, and the soldiers came in and broke down the door of the apartment, and Rav Amital told his cousin, said, maybe we should say Vidri. His cousin said, no, we should say Tehillim, which is a very interesting exchange. Should we prepare for death or should we um, do them for life? And in, in the very, very bizarre moments of the Holocaust, I imagine these two responses were probably simultaneous and in many cases overlapping. But Riva just related to this and Baruch Hashem they survived and they went into every room and they didn't come into the room where Rav Mital was hiding and and Amital saw this it, it just said this as his escape from death and told Paul another story that evidently in Hungary um, he had a uh, discussion with a friend and they were debating whether they should move to Israel and try to escape the Holocaust or flee to Romania and Rav Mital told him that going to Romania would evidently help the friend because the friend was of visionist origin or a lot of visionists of Hasidim in Romania but Rav said I have no chance in visionists he wasn't part of the family of the Rebbe, he didn't have money, he didn't have connections so Rav said at the very least regardless of whatever decision we make we should prepare ourselves to die and the friend was very angry that Rav was responding with such fatalism and they saw each other in Israel, having not seen each other, having each escaped through different routes, and they saw each other actually in Gush Etzion or Kfar Etzion under the British mandate. This is twenty years before Amital launches the yeshiva. And when this friend saw Ramital who had said, "Let's prepare ourselves for Kiddush Hashem," so his friend's reaction was, "You were saved, didn't you? preach about dying for Kiddush Hashem." And Amitai said, "What do you want from me? Am I guilty for surviving?" That's what happened. And all these stories that would tell us about near escapes from death but I think it created in him a real courage uh, a, a personal courage and a largeness, he wasn't a petty person, he wasn't a small person, he wasn't a fearful person you know that strength when I think about David Amalch saying, Hashem is my rock and when you face death so often and you feel the hand of the Kodesh Baruch rescuing you I think you develop uh, intimacy with Hashem, a trust and a reliance on Hashem and There's also a personal disposition that isn't easily affected by the vicissitudes and the challenges in life that also often overwhelm many people. This story with the friend who he was with in Hungary, debating whether to flee to Romania or to prepare themselves for Kiddush Hashem or to run to Israel, highlights a different point. And I think this is really a, a fundamental theme of how Rav Amital's thought was shaped by the Holocaust, and not just his thought, but his life. Um, many people emerged from the Holocaust living with a lot of guilt. Why they were chosen to survive and others so close to them weren't. Shame sometimes, they could have done more. Emotional frustration. Um, many, many of them were broken figures. The Holocaust broke many people, obviously. But for Vamital, I think he walked away with a sense of mission that if he was spared by a Kodesh Baruch, then Hashem had something in mind for him and that he had to do something important um, I'm quoting an English translation of a comment he once said first of all I took upon myself to be a Rosh shiva because I knew that I had to fill the place of my friends who did not survive that sense of mission gave me the strength to do something that fact that I was among the few who remained that gave me strength Otherwise, I would not have taken upon myself such a role. I don't come from a family of rabbis and leaders. My wife comes from a well-known rabbinical family. I come from a simple family. What business did I have building a large institution? I also took upon myself some public roles as the minister in Israel government. I emphasized the moral aspect, and afterwards I was also in the opposition as far as a large portion of the Zionists were concerned. What gave me strength was the fact that I must fill the place of others who did not make it there. And Rav Amitav lived with a very, very powerful sense of, of mission. Building the yeshiva, referring before to the fact that he accepted Perez's invitation in 1996 to be a minister in a, in a, what was then a secular government. He felt that it was his opportunity to restore some of the kiddush Hashem that had been effaced by Yigal Amir, a religious Zionist assassin. He felt that was a Chilol Hashem, that to him, you don't compare it to a Holocaust, but he just lived his life with a sense of events affecting Hashem's presence in this world and the prospect that a religious Jew who had been educated and raised in a Hezdu Yeshiva could assassinate a Prime Minister of the State of Israel was a Chilol Hashem. And he felt that joining a government, because he was a Rosh Hashem, not because of his skills in finance or diplomacy, but they wanted a Rosh Hashem on staff or on the government, he felt was a Kiddush Hashem. And he felt that his life had to be dedicated to finding opportunities to be Mekaddish, Shem Shemayim. Um, tells a very interesting story that when he was deliberating whether to take the helm of the yeshiva, he was driving home from Tel Aviv once, and he heard a story on the radio about children in the New York City who were caught in a fire in a multi storied building, and the parents had assembled below and were urging the children to jump and to leap and to save themselves. And the balloons and the the mattresses had been spread out, but the children just couldn't jump. They were too frightened and they were incinerated or they died of smoke inhalation in the fire. And he felt it was such a tragedy that the older generation, namely the parents, had a message for the children that could save their lives, but they didn't have the language to convey that message. (coughs) He, He then returned home to give up Mordechai where he lived, And he saw fire that night in one of the apartments and he banged on the glass and he helped an elderly woman escape and he thought this was a symbol or a sign from Hashem that he did have a language to save other people's lives and to help them in a way that those unfortunate parents in New York City did not. So he definitely felt that he had been spared for a reason and it reflected itself in the name he took based on a pasuk in Micha, Perikei. The Sheirit Yaakov, Bekerav Amim Rabim, those who will remain amongst the Jewish people, Sheirit Yaakov, the Redak interprets the word Sheirit Yaakov, those who will remain, but not just remain, but those who have endured challenges and Sionos. those who will remain amongst the larger nations, they will be Kital Me'is Hashem, they will be like dew from Hashem. And this encouraged your decline from Hungary to become Yehuda or Rav Yehuda, Ammital. My nation will be Kital. Pasuk and And he sensed that he had been spared along with this um, for a purpose. It also made him very, very conservative um, because he felt, and certainly living through the first few decades of the state of Israel, he felt that we were a and ember saved from the fire, and that our position was very precarious and still vulnerable, and we had to take very very conservative measures to protect the durability of this fledgling state of Israel and the fledgling people of Israel. And it was very very wary to make quick and about making quick and drastic changes. Um, So I think it gave him a sense of mission. It gave him a sense of the vulnerability. Avam Yisrael um, I think it also the Holocaust gave Avam the sense that you can't predict Hashem's will that we live in a world in which if something of the Holocaust can happen then we really don't know what Hashem's thought process is And remember when I was in yeshiva mm-hmm. in the mid 80's there was a terrible, terrible bus accident in which I think even double figures of children were killed within near petach Tickvah, and one of the ministers of Shas hurled an accusatory finger at the secular Kennedy and petach Tickvah for then there were protests about keeping the movie theaters open on Shabbos and he felt that keeping movie theaters open on Shabbos was responsible for the death and, and the tragedy and aside from the moral repugnance of dancing on people's blood he felt this is a lack of your mind to be so confident in Hashem's will to play God. and to, We've seen so many cases over the last 30, 40 years in which people, whether it's Hurricane Katrina or even during the disengagement from Asa when a lot of religious rabbis announced it won't happen and then children woke up the next day and allowed it to happen and, and it did happen and it plunged a lot of these Kids into deep, deep religious crisis. I think from it, from which many of them never recover. And that's why a lot, of, I think, a lot of people today aren't religious in Israel who lived through these experiences as a teenager. And the basic message of Shemaim is we don't know the ways of Hashem. And certainly, in the wake of the Holocaust, if the Holocaust can happen, and these events which don't even approach the magnitude and, and the cruelty of the Holocaust, so the sense that we don't really understand the ways of Hakadosh Baruch Hu and I think it's been an anchor, something I've spoken about on different fronts, to a world in which there's a lot of giddiness and intoxication within prospect of ke'ula that makes us believe we do know the ways of Hashem. We can guarantee HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Ratzon. Um, I think that Rav Amithal always anchored us to the world of and that he thought the Holocaust, or I think that he expressed the Holocaust, was able to anchor. So these are just some thoughts and reflections upon how the Holocaust shaped Rav Amital's thought, and um, thought it would be appropriate for Yom HaShoah to uh, organize some of these ideas.